You are listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 13. 2 Kings, chapter 13, continuing our study on Wednesday nights through the Bible. Just by way of review, of course, 2 Kings, the book of First and 2 Kings, records for us the the history of Israel as a nation, tracking through the united kingdom of David and Solomon's reign, but then now we are in that place of history where the kingdom has been divided. And as you know, the the chapters, they move to the north where we look at the nation of Israel, then it brings us back to the south and we catch up on the kings in the south, the nation of Judah. All of it is the 12 tribes of Israel, but they're divided, and so they have different kings reigning both in the north and in the south. And we recently looked in the southern kingdom of Judah. We just finished Joash's reign. Remember, he was the the king who took the throne at seven years old. He was hid by his uh, aunt and uncle Jehoiada, the wife uh, of the high, excuse me, the high priest Jehoiada and his wife Josheba hid young Joash because his grandmother Athaliah was trying to kill all uh, remnants to the throne so that she could sit as queen. Well, you know the story. She was dethroned and Joash took the throne and he was a good king. So long as Jehoiada, the high priest, was alive, having a godly influence in his life, but we noticed that even in the, in the latter years of his life, after the high priest died, that Joash fell away, ended up being killed by his own servants, and his son Amaziah began to reign. Well, now, chapter 13, the camera pans back to the north. So we, that's what's been going on down in the southern kingdom. Now we'll get up to date with what's been taking place in the north. Now you remember where we left off there. Omri's dynasty, most prominently known by Ahab and Jezebel, that lineage has been removed from the throne. Jehu has come and purged out the the nation's uh, bad king and lineage, including Ahab and Jezebel. And now Jehu's son, Jehu has passed away, and now the kingdom to the north passes to his son. Pick it up with me in verse 1. In the 20 year, 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, so it lets us know historically who was reigning in the south, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria, the kingdom of the north, and he reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin, he did not depart from them. So, Jehu, um, he was used mightily by the Lord, purging out the lineage of Omri, Ahab, Jezebel. He had great opportunity to follow the Lord, but we noticed in his reign that he also continued the the sins uh, of uh, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king of the divided nation in the north, and he right away instituted false worship in the north. He worshiped 
the Jehovah God of Israel, but he set up false places of worship and false idols to worship. He set up golden calves in two places in the north and he said, this is where we'll worship, this is how we'll worship Jehovah, because he didn't want the nation in the north going down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple properly. He was afraid that if the people went down to the south to worship, their hearts would loyal, the loyalty of their hearts would turn away from his king, kingdom and back to the south. So this was instituted by the very first king of the north, and what we see is every king in the, uh, in the north continued that sinful practice. That's what it's letting us know, that they did not reorganize spiritually. They cleaned out the sinful lineage of Ahab, but they did not turn their hearts fully back to the Lord. And pick it up now with me in verse 3. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he left, for he left of the army of Jehoahaz only fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing." Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. This is not the Joash that was king of Judah. This is a new Joash, same name, but now reigning in the north. Verse 10, in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, so now you have this brief time where the kings of both the north and the south share the same name. So in the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. So in verse 10, the writer changes the name of Joash to Jehoash, just so we can keep the difference. They're both named Joash, but Jehoahash is another spelling rendering of the name. So we have the kings both the north and the south of the same name. But the king of the north is who we're tracking with right now. Verse 11, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but they, walked, they continued to walk in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers, then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. 
So we're tracking through these kings as they reign and pass the lineage, the throne onto their sons through the kingdom of the north. And the scripture is letting us know that they continue to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They're continuing to uh, rebel against God. They're not submitting to his word. They're not worshiping him in a proper way. They're continuing in the patterns that were set before them right from the beginning. But we see in this little section that we just read that even in that state, a nation that is turning its back on the Lord, a nation that is rebelling against God, refusing to submit to his word, to his counsel, even in that condition, God is extending mercy. First, it says his anger was aroused, and when God was dealing with the nation, the way he would deal with them, he would allow their enemies to begin to reign over them, to rule over them, to torment them. Because God had promised when they came into the land, if they would be faithful to him, he would protect them. They, would have, they wouldn't have the enemies coming in. He would protect them. He would bless them. He would prosper them. But as they, their hearts turned away from the Lord, the Lord would pull his hand of protection back, and then their enemies would come in and torment them. The book of Judges is a complete cycle of that going on throughout Israel's early history. Before there were kings, they, God raised up judges to rule, and the, the nation would turn away from the Lord, and their enemies would come in and oppress them. They would cry out to God. God would send a deliverer. They would, they would return to the Lord. They would live in favor with the Lord, but then they would drift away. God would let the enemies come in, and this cycle, that's the book of Judges. And we're seeing something of that here continuing in the, in the nation of Israel. But I want to point out that even in that setting, God's mercy. God is allowing the enemies to come in and oppress the people because God is wanting to soften the heart of the people to come back and turn to the Lord. And we notice that Jehoahaz, even though he's an, a, an evil king, He's not leading the nation properly spiritually, but when the Syrian nation begins to oppress them, and we see that they put them almost down to dust, it says, almost decimated their army and their ability to defend themselves, well, in that moment of desperation, guess what? Even a bad king knows where to go. He turns to God. God, can you help me? God, can you help us? And he cried out. And the Scripture tells us that God was merciful. God saw that they were oppressed. The heart of God takes no delight in the suffering of His people. The heart of God takes no delight in even rebellion that has to go through the hardship of discipline, and God does not delight in those things, but God allows those things so that their hearts of the people will return. And as this king cries out, God extends mercy. It says that he raised up a deliverer. We don't know the name of this deliverer. It may have been possibly the Assyrian army coming and attacking Syria. Syria was oppressing Israel. God allowed the Assyrians, brought them to attack Syria, distracting the the Assyrians away, and then giving peace, deliverance to the nation of Israel. But he saw their oppression, and he met them. And isn't this the way the Lord continues to work? God 
still willing to be merciful, a heart that cries out in crisis, a heart that cries out at the last minute, right? A heart that's been unfaithful to God, a a heart that's been disinterested in God, a people that have completely rejected God, but oh, in that moment of crisis, they turn to God, and God, in His mercy and in His grace, He delivers. He responds. And God's desire is in that moment that the heart would turn back to the Lord. But we see here, the Scripture tells us, nevertheless, tragic word in this place, they did not depart from their sins. The Bible tells us that God's mercy is not intended to be a license for an ongoing life of rebellion and sin, but that His kindness, His goodness, is to actually give us opportunity to repent, to change, to turn. Paul said this in Romans 2 and verse 4, Do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Maybe you've experienced this. I can think of times in my own life when I was living selfishly, living away from the Lord, but then crisis would come, things happen, circumstances, and it gets your attention, and then you turn back to the Lord, 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 I need your help. Forgive me. I, I, I need your help now. And God graciously and mercifully intervenes and rescues you. That moment of kindness, that moment of goodness, that is not to, to, that you would imagine, oh good, I can just come to God in emergencies and get things straightened out and then go back to my business. No, that kindness, that goodness is, for, is God appealing to your heart, come back to me. You've been rebelling. You've been living apart from me. I'm not showing you this kindness to condone what you've been doing. I'm showing you this kindness, this mercy. I'm extending my grace to you because I love you. And I see the oppression that's coming. I see the destruction that's coming to your life, the choices that you're making, the path that you're choosing. It's going to bring hardship. It's going to bring destruction. It's going to bring emptiness, futility. Turn back to me. God answers us in that moment of crisis. He intervenes in our emergency. How many of you have had the Lord intervene in an emergency? And God is so good in that time of need. But understand that when He meets you there, that's to bring you closer to Him. That's to have your heart turn to Him. I'm going to ask you, hold your place in 2 Kings 13. Turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I want you to follow me in a passage here from Peter. Because I think this is a very important principle for the Christian faith that we would understand our Christian life is to be a growing and maturing and a diligent effort on our part to continue walking towards the Lord and with the Lord. The Christian life is not intended by God to be this roller coaster up and down, in and out, 
come in during crisis, get some help, go back out and drift away, come back during crisis, get some help, go back out and drift away, and your Christian life is this up and down seesaw of spiritual life. Now, I think all of our Christian journey does, all of us do experience some of that, I'll be honest. Even as you're walking with the Lord in close relationship, there does seem to be highs and lows. We can all probably say amen to that. There's just times when you really sense God's closeness, and there's times when He seems withdrawn, and, and God is drawing you out in faith, learning to walk by faith. But I'm talking about that life that kind of is living carelessly with his faith, her faith, being, you know, something less than diligent. You're just kind of playing, playing games. You're coming to God when you need him, and boy, you need him, but then you're not diligent with your own walk, your own relationship when the pressure's off, right? The pressure's off, and we slide back into kind of spiritual laziness, lackadaisical faith, Peter uh, speaks to us about this. You're there in 2 Peter chapter 1. Pick it up with me in verse 5. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will, neither be, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Peter speaking very practically to the, to the Christians of his time, and it speaks to us. Listen, add things to your faith. In other words, continue to grow. Continue to be diligent in your walk with the Lord because God wants to develop these Christian virtues in your life. God has not saved you just to promise heaven not just so that you can have a sense of, you know, not being judged for sin. God wants to develop our life, to disciple us into mature Christian faith. And, and Peter is saying, look, these are the things that you want to add. And he gives a list, you know, and, and I don't think it's an exhaustive list or necessarily a chronological list as much as it is just the idea that the Christian life is something that's growing and abounding he likens it to fruit. If these things are yours and abound, in other words, if they're being regularly seen and produced and maturing in your life, then you won't be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. Your Christian journey isn't going to be the up and down roller coaster. It's going to be a gradual, growing, maturing, strengthening relationship with Him. And then he gives this warning in verse 9, but he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. This was the trouble back in Israel. The king cries out to God and God delivers. But once the pressure was gone, once God brought the deliverance and solved the crisis, the memory 
was too short, forgot the mercy, forgot the grace, and nevertheless, it says, they just continued in their own sinful pattern. God's grace and God's mercy is to bring us into a deeper relationship with Him, that our hearts would turn away from sin, that we would repent and turn to Him. Peter says, let these things grow and develop, because if, if they're not, if, if these are not maturing and this fruit is not manifesting in your life, there's something wrong. You're living, you're still a believer, but you're being short-sighted. You're being blind about the trouble that you're getting yourself into as so much of it is your own doing because you're just living from crisis moment to crisis moment rather than being diligent in your walk and faith with the Lord. And you forget. You forget what God has delivered you from. You go right back to the same foolish choices, the same places that made you vulnerable and entangled you, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, set aside every sin and weight which so easily ensnare us and run your race. This Christian journey is something that we must give our hearts to diligently, not just, you know, emergency, 911 prayers when we need the Lord in crisis. Now, when you need the Lord in crisis, pray. You always pray in crisis. That's, I'm not saying that we stop doing that, but I'm suggesting that that not be the only time that you're praying, not be the only uh, time when your heart is really sincere and close to the Lord. You know, you don't need to turn this to this, but I'll remind you, James talking about being short-sighted, talking about forgetting things, how quickly we forget once the Lord kind of takes us out of crisis. James said the same thing concerning the hearing and, of, and doing of the Word. He said in James 1.22, Be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does. James says this short memory, this easy forgetting is a problem for the Christian. And he's saying, listen, when you read the Word, when you hear the Word, and the Word of God speaks to you, it can happen in a sermon, it can happen, wow, the Lord's speaking to your heart. But as soon as you walk away from it, before you get to the car, before you get home, what did the pastor say? What was that message about? You may, have been, you may have been ministered to to tears during the message, but then, you know, life is out there waiting, and how quickly we forget. And so James is saying, listen, that's just like a man. He looks in the mirror. He sees the issues, but then he walks away, and the Word of God does expose us, doesn't it? The Word of God has a way of probing and, and kind of cutting to the very intentions of the heart, and there are moments when God is speaking, and, and you sense it, you know it. God's got His finger on your heart, and He's ministering to you in a very, very special, powerful moment. But, but James says, if you don't let that change you, if you don't allow that moment to affect your life, then you're just like a man who walks away from the mirror and forgets what he saw. 
You had that moment, but you, you dismissed it. James is saying, be careful. When God is speaking to you, when you're hearing His voice, when the Word of God is ministering, you put it to work in your life. Be a doer of the Word. And that's what Peter is saying. Let these things be diligently added. Don't be forgetful, forgetting what God has delivered you from, forgetting what God has done in your life. And this is what happened in the nation of Israel. So often we see the cycle. They forgot what God had done. And that short memory led them right back into trouble. Turn with me now back to 2 Kings chapter 13. And we have a little insert here into the passing of Elisha. Elisha, of course, the famous prophet. Elijah was a famous prophet. Elisha took up the mantle from Elijah, and he's been this prophet ministering God's Word, God's truth into the nation of Israel, even while they've been turning away from the Lord. This is how God would speak to them. He would send a, a, a prophet to bring his will, his voice, his, his desire heard in the nation. But Elisha has come of age now. Look with me back in the chapter, verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Elisha, this great prophet of God, many miracles had come through this prophet. God had done miraculous things, healings. Remember, Elisha had prayed and brought a young man back to life. But even Elisha, we, it's interesting, here he is, he's sick, and this is the sickness that will lead to his death. In other words, even mighty men of God are still just men and subject to the same issues that fallen men suffer with. His body grew sick, and he eventually died. This life is not intended to be eternal in these bodies on this earth. And even Elisha, a great prophet, but we see he fades. And Joash, the bad king, has a heart for this prophet. You know, in this, in this moment, he's, he knows, it's almost as if Joash, deep down in his conscience, he knows that Elisha is the true voice of God. He's not turned his heart. He's not obeying. He's not turning the nation. But he knows Elisha has been that faithful voice of God. And he comes and he weeps over him. It's a time of mourning. And he says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen, you've been our defense, Elisha. You've been the one that's helped defend our nation. You've been the voice of God. God has spoken through you. God has ministered to us. And Joash, even though he's been a rebellious king, his heart is sorry to see Elisha, the great prophet, fading. Well, Elisha has one last prophecy for this young king. Verse 15, And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. And then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window, and he opened it. And then Elisha said, shoot, and he shot. 
And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have, excuse me, destroyed them. And then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. Interesting, this last prophecy for the king of Israel. And this is God's mercy again. This king is not, his heart's not in the right place, but in this moment of longing over Elisha, God sends a word, God sends a prophecy of victory. But even in this moment, we see that the king's faith is weak. Elisha the prophet says, strike the ground with the arrows. Now, that word for strike, uh, some think that it, he'd already shot one arrow out, And Elisha was actually saying, strike the ground. In other words, shoot more arrows out onto the ground because that's going to signify your deliverance over Syria. He'd already told him that this arrow represents a victory in battle over Syria. And now, do it again. And so he does it, but only three times, as if he's not really, you know, taking full advantage of the opportunity. God wants to deliver you. God wants to work. God wants to to minister. Now, stand up and shoot the arrow. You know, you'd think that if he'd had real faith, man, he'd have shot every arrow he had. He'd have shot until until the prophet stopped him or he was out of arrows. And so the prophet says, you know, you didn't embrace this with the faith and 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 the real hope that God had intended. You will have victory, but only the three times that you struck. I think sometimes the Lord wants to do things in our lives, but is limited, not by His power, but by our willingness to walk in faith. I thought maybe, you know, sometimes prayer is hard for us to continue in because we don't see the answer right away. We're not sure if it's really working. But the Scripture encourages us to pray, to ask, to seek, to keep asking, to seek with all your heart, to pray, to make your requests known unto God. Almost the prophet saying, okay, listen, God wants to work. God wants to work in your life. God wants to bring victory. Start shooting arrows. Okay, one, two, three. Okay, that's enough. And sometimes we treat prayer that way. Pray, seek the Lord. Okay, okay, pray, pray. Okay, that's enough. I've prayed. He knows. But the Lord is, not, it's, Lord is not asking us to pray because He needs to know what we have to say. God is asking us to pray because He's asking our hearts to engage with Him in faith. There is a laying hold of the Lord in prayer. There is a pressing on and in through prayer. And God will sometimes, I think, draw us out, you know, will you keep praying? Will you keep believing? We pray and nothing happens right away. Sometimes it does, right? Let's be honest, those miracle prayers. Don't you love that? You pray and God just does it. Wow, this prayer stuff is easy. It works like that. It doesn't work like that all the time. 
And there are times when God wants you to, to, to hang in there in prayer so that we would continue. God wants to work in your life. God wants to bring blessing. He wants to bring victory. He wants to accomplish good works through your life. He wants to work in your marriage. He wants to work in your family. He wants to use you in the workplace. He wants to work in your own life and walk and conduct. God wants to work good things in your life. Shoot those arrows of prayer. Keep shooting. Keep asking. Keep knocking. Keep seeking the Lord. God will work and move mightily through prayer. Verse 20, then Elisha died, and they buried him, and the raiding bands from Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. And so it was, as they were burying a man, that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. This is an interesting miracle. They buried Elisha, and he has a tomb. Well, these men are out, and they're in the midst of battle. Somebody's dead. We've got to bury him. Oh, here comes raiders. We've got to get rid of this body fast. Well, let's just put him in Elisha's tomb. It's here. It's, it's available. They put him in there, and as soon as he touches the bones of Elisha, he comes back to life. Man, just bring everybody into that tomb, right? Let's get, this is a one-time, this is a one-off miracle, God doing something unique and unusual. But God will, at times, work an unusual miracle. What's he saying? What's the point of this miracle? Well, of course, this young man was glad to be brought back to life, a miracle in his life. But God is wanting to keep the testimony, the message of Elisha, alive in the heart of the nation. The prophet is gone, but his message can live on. They know what Elisha taught. They know what Elisha said while he lived. They know what the prophet spoke, and even his bones bringing back this young man to life. There's no magic in the bones of Elisha. There's no power in the body of Elisha, a dead prophet. The power was God who used the dead body of the prophet to bring back to life the message of the prophet, to keep his word alive in the nation. This is a nation that is losing touch with God, and God is still in mercy and in grace, showing himself miraculously in this case to gain the heart and attention of the people back to the message of, of the prophet. We see this sometimes in the book of Acts. I thought of one, and I'll just quote this to you, this idea of an unusual miracle. That's the actual wording that's used in Acts chapter 19, verse 11. It says that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Interesting. This is the Apostle Paul during his ministry and missionary work. That's, and the writer, Luke, the writer of Acts, lets us know that God was just doing incredible, miraculous things, even unusual things. Now, this is unusual because this is not the pattern. 
This doesn't mean that, you know, every apostle just start getting handkerchiefs uh, passed around. This was an unusual, unique miracle that God was doing in this moment at this time through this minister. And the point is that God is affirming the message of the prophet, in this case, the message of the apostle. The apostle who was out preaching what? What was Paul preaching? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And God is affirming that message, even miraculously. But the writer lets us know this is a unique, kind of unusual thing. We ought not to expect God to work like that every time. It's not a pattern that God is developing, all right? We don't, we don't throw people in on dead men's bones to see what will happen, right? No, this is a one-time miracle. God was doing it for His purpose, for His advancing of the kingdom, I'd love to see more miracles in my time. I don't know about you. And I have seen what I believe are miracles in my lifetime, God moving miraculously. But I also know that God, God doesn't want me chasing miracles. God doesn't want me, you know, only having faith when I see the miracles. Those, some of these miracles seem to be given as the Spirit wills, and what it seems to me is that God is, is doing it at unique times per His counsel and will, not to, not to just remedy the situation of the moment, although miracles do often do that, but rather there is a bigger picture that God has in mind, and that is to further the kingdom, to affirm the message I think if, you will, if we will engage our lives in the work of the kingdom, you will see miracles. You will see more of God working miraculously in your life if you are engaged in the work that God wants to affirm through His power. We're just sitting and waiting, God, give me a miracle. I want a miracle. But our lives are not engaged in the work of the kingdom. We just have a need, and we want God to meet it. God wants us to pray and seek Him for all of our needs, and nothing is impossible with the Lord. I'm not discouraging any prayer or any hope or any faith that we would hold on to that God can and may work miraculously, and we should seek that in any crisis. But I also believe that our hearts need to be engaged in the work of the kingdom. And as, you, as you're looking for places and ways to share the gospel, as you're looking for your life to be an impact of light in this dark time in which we live, I believe that's when the Holy Spirit is meeting miraculously, affirming, confirming, establishing His work through the life of His people, empowered by the Holy Spirit. God working to validate His Word. Let's finish up here tonight. There's a few more verses. Verse 22. And Haziel, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Now Haziel, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place, and Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father by war, 
three times, just as the prophet predicted. Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So it closes out these two kings, the father and son. Syria was a constant threat, but we see that God was merciful. Jehoahaz had come and pleaded with the Lord, and God sent deliverance. And then God, through the prophet Elisha, gave this prophetic word of victory to his son Joash. But here's why God was doing these things. Verse 23, the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. God's helping the nation was because of his compassion, because of his mercy. The Lord was gracious to them. The Lord was patient with them. He would not yet destroy them. He would not remove them from the land. God patiently helping, graciously sending aid. A couple of... uh, verses in the New Testament, and we'll close tonight. In fact, I would ask you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. I want to close tonight on just that highlighting that, that passage that we just read, that the Lord was compassionate, the Lord was gracious. In the end, that's what we all need is the Lord's mercy and the Lord's grace. And I want to tell you that God is abundant in grace and mercy. And that Jesus, if he showed us anything, he showed us the compassion and the grace and the mercy of God. God wants to save. God wants to help. God wants to forgive. God wants to work good and blessing into our lives. You're there in Luke 15. We'll read it in a moment. Let me remind you of this passage out of Mark chapter 1. Verse 40, now a leper came to him, to Jesus, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. God is willing. The heart of Jesus moved with compassion, this man in desperation crying out to God, knowing that Jesus had the ability, but did he have a willingness to touch him, to heal him? And Jesus said, I am willing. Moved with compassion, he reached out. You're there in Luke 15. I want to close with this story of the prodigal son. Because I want to emphasize in your heart tonight the mercy, the grace, the long-suffering, the patience of God. We see it in the Old Testament, a rebellious people, stiff-necked, hard-hearted group, but God patiently working, saving, wanting to, to help. Luke 15, verse 11, then he said, Jesus telling this, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, Give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, 
and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living, sinful, wasteful living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And the crisis comes. Verse 15, Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. I love that story. The prodigal son. Because I think, I know in my heart I can relate to it. I think in everyone's heart at some time you can relate to that. Time when you've distanced yourself from the Lord. Gone your own way. Pursued your own interests. And then you come to the end of yourself. I like that passage. It says, when he came to himself. There comes a time when you have to come to yourself. You have to recognize, what am I doing? What am I doing? But this is when sometimes the enemy will come in. The enemy will come in and whisper, it's too late. You can't go back now. What, you, you think God will have you now? You think your father will receive you back you're too far, too far gone. It's too late. Give up. Get over it. And that's the, the voice of the enemy, trying to keep you from returning to the Father. But Jesus tells this story, and clearly the Father represents our Heavenly Father. And the prodigal son is that individual who has gone away from God and lived sinfully, but he comes to himself, and he comes with repentance. He doesn't come trying to play a game with his father. He comes sincerely and, sorry, I, I don't deserve, but here I am. I need your help. Just let me be one of the servants. Just let me have something where I can at least survive. But we see the heart of the Father. It says, while his son was still a long ways off, the Father saw him. The Father must have been up every day looking for him, looking out on the road, coming to his house. Will he come home today? And when he saw him, he ran out and he embraced him. The son repented. The son asked for forgiveness. The father said, oh, you're my son. You were lost, but you're found. You're alive again and celebrated his return. And it says that the Father was moved with compassion. And that's what I want to sow into your heart tonight as, as we close, is that God loves you. And the, the heart of God is 
filled with compassion and mercy and grace. Maybe you're here tonight, and maybe you're playing a game. You know, maybe you're that, you're, you're, you're the up and down. And God's grace is not to condone that. Maybe it's time for you to come home in earnest. Maybe it's time for you to come home and say, God, enough. Enough of me trying to, to balance the world and my faith. Enough of this me trying to somehow manage my, my, my sinful endeavors and then, you know, rush home to, to mercy when I need it. Maybe it's time for you to come to yourself as that prodigal did, and recognize this is not what God's called me to live. I'm, I'm living short-sighted. I need to become all in with the Lord. Maybe you're here tonight and you are distant from the Lord. Maybe you're on one of those down cycles, the ups and downs. Maybe you're on a down and you're thinking, you know, it's too, maybe it's too late. I don't know if, I, if the Lord would have me. I want you to know that God is merciful and gracious. He doesn't want to condone sin. He's not looking for, you know, some, some insincere heart. God knows the heart. He sees the heart. But for the sincere heart, the broken and contrite spirit, He will not despise. He will not turn back. He is waiting. His eyes have been looking for you, waiting for you to come to yourself and return to Him and come to the Lord. We see it in the nation of Israel there, this rebellious people. God's still appealing. God's still sending help, His compassion, His mercy, His patience. And how patient has He been with me? How patient has He been with you? But all of it is so that you will come to Him in earnest and receive grace and help and mercy, that He can embrace you and bring you back into relationship with Him because He wants to lead and bless your life with good things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for this account of the history of Israel. We see, Lord, the nature of man, and we see also the compassion and mercy of God. And Lord, as we see that even tonight, I pray that our hearts will be moved, that our hearts will be stirred with thanksgiving, that our hearts would be motivated to draw close to you, that our hearts would, would be motivated with wisdom and discernment. God, there's nothing for me out there. There's nothing that I can find apart from you. As our heads are bowed and we close here tonight, I want to close with some worship, but just before we sing with worship, I, I do want to just pray for anyone here tonight that the Lord is speaking to. And it may be that you need to respond to the Lord. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're here tonight and, and the Lord is drawing you to Himself. He's saying, come home. I've been waiting. I've been looking. It's time. I love you. There's mercy here. There's grace available. It's not too late. You're not too far. I love you. If you're sincere, come home. And I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're a believer, but your, your heart has grown distant from him. And you've, you've engaged in 
things that have just drawn you away from the Lord. Maybe it's been a trial that discouraged you. Maybe it's been sin that's entangled you. Maybe it's just been a lack of diligence. But for whatever reason, you're here tonight and you know, I need the Lord. I don't want to wait till the next 911 prayer. I want to come home tonight. I need the Lord now. I want to ready my heart. I want to draw close to you. I want to recommit my life to you tonight, Jesus. I'd love to pray for you. Maybe you're someone who's never made that step of faith. Maybe you thought, you know, there was nothing for you. Maybe you thought, you know, I don't know that God would have me. God loves you. He sent His Son to die on the cross for you so that you can have your sins forgiven and have relationship with Him. I'd love to pray for you too if this is step one in faith towards Jesus. So if you're here tonight and you want to receive Christ or you need to recommit, rededicate your life to Christ, raise your hand. I want to close in prayer. Anybody here tonight, the Lord is speaking to you and you need to respond. God bless you. Upstairs, a hand. A couple hands over here on my left. God bless you. Anyone else? The Lord speaking to you. He loves you. His grace, His mercy. Anyone here tonight playing games with God? Anyone here tonight trying to game the system? God sees your heart. God knows. You need to get right with God. Anybody? Raise your hand. God bless you. A couple hands here. God bless you. Time to come clean with Jesus tonight. He loves you. He wants to work. Anyone else going to pray for these? Anybody else need to respond? So, Lord, for these hearts responding to you tonight, you know nothing is hidden from your sight. But, God, as you look at these hearts tonight, I believe, like the, like the father in the prodigal son story, you've been looking for a long time. You've been waiting for that heart to turn to you, to come to himself, herself. And that you would just rush and run to them now in the love and mercy of the Holy Spirit and embrace them and bring them home to family, bring them home to abundance, bring them home to mercy, to forgiveness. And I pray for each heart here tonight that your prayer would be like the prodigal, Father, forgive me. I've sinned. I've sinned against you. I've sinned against others, and I need your mercy, and I need your forgiveness. I don't deserve it, but I believe you love me. I believe you died. You sent your son to die on the cross for me, and I'm receiving that forgiveness tonight and setting my heart for home. Hold me, Lord. Draw me close. I want to live in the blessing and fullness of your love and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. We pray you have been blessed by this sermon. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org.